This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Geekscapists, check it out. I'm sitting here with my good buddy, Michael Uslan. He's the executive producer on the Batman films. He actually optioned the material way back in the 70s, and he's got a pretty amazing story. It's been cataloged in two books now. First, The Boy Who Loved Batman. Right. And now this new one that's coming out right now called The Batman's Batman. So, surprise, I'm live streaming this too. I did not intend to, uh, but you kept submitting questions. I've got them here. I'll read them out. So, if you're watching on Facebook... Twitch, YouTube, or maybe you're peddling your resumes on LinkedIn. <laughs> Some of you are watching on LinkedIn. Uh, thanks for joining us. We got Michael here, and uh, we're going to talk to him here on a brand new Geekscape. Hey, Geekscapists, welcome back to the show. I hope you've enjoyed uh, the podcast over the last, what, 15 years we've been talking to people on this podcast. Uh, one of the people I've met in making the show is Mike Luzlin, who Hi, everybody. We first met on a comics in comics panel at like LA Comic Con. And I think Boy Who Loved Batman, your first book, had just come out. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Um, I've, been, you know, I've been at every Comic Con at least one of the big ones, whether it's New York or San Diego, every single year since the first Comic-Con around 1964. And with an asterisk for the COVID year, that wasn't for any of the big Comic-Cons. But I'm closing in on my 60th annual Comic-Con. We um, have had a booth, Geekscape, at San Diego Comic-Con since 2010. We finally got off that wait list after a few years. And we paid for... 2020, it obviously didn't happen. They moved our payment up to 2021. And I'd like to report that we recently were asked, hey, what hotels do y'all want? Because we're definitely having San Diego Comic-Con this year and Geekscape will be there and we're going to have a fun. And I'll be there. Yeah, I think I think that is my way of saying like you should do a book signing at the Geekscape booth on the floor. I don't know if that, you're down with that, but come to the Have your and- people call my people. We'll do lunch. <laughs> I think that the people involved are sitting on this couch right now talking to Geekscapists. Uh, Michael's had a pretty busy couple of weeks. Uh, you, you went to the premiere of this 
uh, indie film, uh, the Batman. Yeah. What yeah, is this, that about? This, this little thing. It's about a guy <laughs> who wears a funny costume. And <laughs> yeah, Batman has been part of my life since I was five years old. Um, at first, I was a little bit scared. So Superman was a lot more comfortable. Superman was on TV and it was lighter and brighter. And it really wasn't until I was a far more mature and sophisticated seven years old that I really began to sink my teeth into Batman comics. Mm -hmm. um, but that was it for me. When, when I discovered that there was a superhero with no superpowers, unlike Superman or the Hulk or, or, or any of the other ones, really, um, I just began to completely identify with this character. And by the time I was eight, I believed I could be him. Uh, all it took was study really hard, work out really hard, and get my dad to buy me a cool car. It was a done deal. Yeah, well, you're, the, the billions of dollars, I think, plays into that. <laughs> yeah, well. There's a lot of resources involved in being Batman. Yeah, but when you are six, seven, eight years old, you don't right. focus on that as much as you do on the tights and the mask and the cape. Yeah, I, I think that we all ran around in Batman masks or Spider-Man outfits as kids and reading your books, uh, boy, uh, loved Batman. Like that one was one that I think you gave me at LACC. I know cause you, I think you signed it. Um, and I just remember, uh, I'm sorry. It just, um, these things are popping up like your comments <laughs> and they're distracting, but I have your questions right here. Geekscapist. Um, I think we all had similar, childhoods but you grew up in an era where superman was the superhero people acknowledged but the adam west batman when that one came to tv like did did you enjoy it or was it something where you're like wait a minute that's not necessarily okay. my batman that is a context of the times question right so i'm going to take you all back to a very cold night in january 1966 i had been waiting for this thing for months and the anticipation was beyond comprehension. It, it, it was incredible. You have to understand that up to that point on time on television, we comic book fans had Superman. We had about one season of Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. <laughs> and um, that was about it. But you had the serials, like you had Lone Ranger earlier. I mean, well, this yeah, well, is before no, you, but you had the, whoa, you had the Tarzan stop, serials. Stop, stop, stop. Those are not comic book characters. Right. Those are pulp characters. Um, yeah, uh, Lone Ranger or, or radio characters right, also. Right. Lone Ranger. Um, there was Terry and the Pirates was on uh, Steve Canyon that came out mm -hmm. of comic strips, mm -hmm. but not hardcore comic book properties. So this was something really, really big. And then finally the night came, it comes on TV. I'm downstairs in my den and I'm so excited. And what happened was I was virtually simultaneously thrilled and horrified by what I was saying. Because as it started, I see the animation. I go, all right, that's cool. That kind of looks like Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson artwork. It's in color. That was a bonus in 1966. The sets, somebody was spending a lot of money for these sets and the car was really cool. Yeah. The car was cool. It was about 20 minutes in when it hit me. This is a comedy. Oh my God, the world is laughing at Batman. They're making a joke out of Batman. And that killed me. And it killed me for several reasons. Number one, by 1966, I was already a hardcore fan. I was a member of very early forming comic book fandom. 
and subscribe to the different fanzines. And at age 13, I started writing for the fanzines. So I, and I lived within an hour in New York City. And every time we had time off from school, I begged my mom and dad to take me and my friend Bobby and some of my other friends to the Tuesday afternoon tours at DC Comics and to the homes of the creators, artists, and writers of all the superheroes practically since the 1930s because the how whole comic book industry was in New York pretty but, much. But how, how do you find out where people like Bob Kane? That was through the early fans. Right, yeah. Because they would, Roy Thomas would interview Otto Binder in, in uh, an issue of Alter Ego fanzine. And it would say he lived in New Jersey in the town. And then we had this magic thing called phone book. <laughs> the phone book. <laughs> and you open it up and you actually can find a person's address and phone number. It's so, almost illegal at this point. <laughs> the, the, the internet is where you don't want your address posted yeah, at this it's, point. <laughs> it's very different today. So um, I went and I interviewed like everybody I could possibly interview. And I went to every comic book company based in New York. Um, and when this one, I was 13, 14, 15 years old. So I met Bill Finger twice. Wow. And I think I may be one of only two people left alive who knew Bill Finger. I think Joe Gilla and me are about the only two I can think of. But know him how well, like, you traded letters? No, no, or... no, no, no. no. For, I met him at DC Comics on the Tuesday afternoon tour and talked to him. He was sitting at one of the um, like artists' sure. areas. And we got to talk, and he gave me his autograph. I still have it to this day. I reprinted it in uh, The Boy yeah. Who Loved Batman. And then Otto Binder became my first mentor in the business. Otto, for those of you who don't know and should know, Otto is the creator of Mary Marvel the Marvel family book, Captain Marvel Jr., Black Adam. And then he went on to DC Comics where he co-created Supergirl, The Legion of Superheroes, uh, Brainiac, Crypto, The Superdog, soon to have his own film starring yeah, major motion picture. And they used the Danny Elfman theme in the trailer for that one. Of course they yeah. would, between and, him and Bathound. And the one thing, and Geekscape is, Ian and I definitely went in depth on Matt Reeves' Batman. Uh, if you've seen the movie... We're not going to spoil the Batman here, uh, but we did do an in-depth, very spoilerific episode that's on the feed now. Um, the one thing that I miss is that theme, just like when the 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 uh, new Superman's started coming out, the Man of Steel. That that John Williams theme is so iconic. A part of me feels like that stuff should just be ushered in. I understand why Warner Brothers wants to create a new take, and that means a new score, but. The Batman theme that Danny Elfman did, the John Williams Superman theme, those almost feel married to the characters. They're so iconic. Oh, let's not cut out the Joker, right? Um, which wound up winning an Oscar mm -hmm. for its musical score. And I think uh, Michael Giacchino's right up there. Uh, that thing should be inundated with awards. It's, it's an incredible score. Um, but um, at New York Comic Con, July 65 in a flea bag hotel in downtown New York city. And how old were you at the time? I was 14 years old. Okay. And, um, it's nine 30 in the morning. My parents and I check in, my mom's freaking out. There's like rats running around. There's roaches <laughs> on the walls. We have to step over an unconscious drunk guy no. in order to check in. Oh, no. yeah. I don't know what she expected for $3 and 75 cents a night for a room, but you can't skip on a hotel in New York. That some things never change. No, this was a palace. 
the weekend of Lincoln's inauguration. <laughs> yeah, but, but now. The first Comic-Con, not so much. <laughs> hundred years later. So at 9.30 in the morning, me and my friend Bobby, my mom finally says, all right, all right, you can go, but don't touch anything. So, You're safer at the convention. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So as we go by this sketchy bar in the lobby at 9.30 in the morning, who do we see in there but Otto Binder mm -hmm. with another guy. And we go, Otto, Otto. He goes, Mike, Bobby, come on in. And we sit down at this bar. The bartender looks like Long John Silver from the movie <laughs> Treasure Island, minus the parrot. And he says, what are you guys, what are you boys drinking? So we go, uh, we'll, we'll have Cokes. So we get a Coke and we're sitting there and we're talking. And um, he said, who are you going to be dressed up as tonight for the uh, uh, masquerade party? Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm going as the 1940 Sandman with the gas mask yeah, from DC yeah. Comics. And Bobby said, I'm going as the Shadow. So Otto says, well, boys, you know, the Shadow is the biggest influence in the creation of Batman. Yeah. And we said, no, we didn't know that. But we're huge Batman fans, big Batman fans. And Otto says to us, well, then, boys, how'd you like to meet the creator of Batman? And we go, yeah. He says, Mike, Bobby, meet Bill Finger. And I wound up sitting in a sketchy bar in New York at age 14 with Bill Finger drinking whatever he and Otto were drinking. And during that conversation at that bar, Bill told us the story of the creation of Batman straight from the horse's mouth. And he mouth. admitted like he was a big pulp guy. And I always felt like Batman is more reminiscent of the pulp characters than he is of an actual superhero. Well, right? Like he belongs in the Justice League because he's the brain of that operation. But... He has a lot in common with the Shadow and the Phantom and those powerless, you know, billionaires who then go out and fight crime and clean up the streets. More than a lot in common. Yeah. You may or may not know that uh, Tony Tolan discovered in the Shadow Pulp, November 1936, Partners of Peril, <laughs> Bill and Bob ripped off the story for Detective Number 27, Case of the Chemical Syndicate. It's a ripoff. Right. Complete ripoff. And the spot illustrations from the um, pulp, Bob swiped and made changes and used the same illustrations so, in the first Batman story. So the first Batman story is basically just a ripoff of a shadow story. Yeah. And now, Bill always said he, that he was directly inspired by or influenced by the shadow. But a little shadow. more than that. It was a little bit more than that. But yeah, but one more thing. No. Before anyone blames Bill talk about, yeah. for anything. You got to remember at the time, these guys never thought their work was going to be remembered. They yeah. thought they were writing stuff that's akin to yesterday's newspaper and would just be gone with the wind. There was no permanence to this. And it was a matter of how quickly could we turn the work out because this was the depression. Yeah. And their job, number one, was to bring in food for, for themselves and their families and get a roof on, over their heads. Nothing else mattered so much. You so you, you know. got to look back at the times. You hear horrible stories about, you know, later on, you know, in the 60s, maybe later you have creators like maybe it's Kane or Finger and they're in the Marvel offices like emptying, like working as emptying waste bins and things like that. Have you heard these stories of um, the, how the treatment was for some of these older creators who really like created the entire medium? A lot of those stories are jumbled. I think the the story you're really talking about is what happened to Jerry Siegel. That's what the, that was the creator, it. The creator Superman. Superman. That's Jerry the story. wound up living in Los Angeles, and he was working in the mailroom of a company here in Los Angeles, and they had no idea that the guy, the old guy who was delivering the mail, was the creator of Superman. 
And that just seems wrong. <laughs> wrong seems, on every level. Uh, my, wrong on every level. My old screenwriting teacher, Jerry Cass, has a story when he was in his 20s coming out to LA and he goes to the dentist and his dentist says, hey, Jerry, you know, you're, you're a writer. There's somebody I want you to meet. And he introduces him to a patient of his coming off of the chair and he's an older dude and has a German accent. He says, nice to meet you. And he says, what's your name? He goes, I'm Fritz Long. And Jerry's just taken aback that this guy who directed Metropolis and M and all these really influential silent era films, well, M's arguably not a silent era film, right? And the, he said, what are you up to today? And Fritz Long's like, I'm trying to get hired. I'm trying to find work. And it's kind of scary. And as a young person, you're in your 20s now in the 70s. This story of like getting Batman, we talk, we can talk about the new book, Batman's Batman, and what it means of being the one person that was defending Batman against all of the people in the 70s and early 80s who wanted to turn Batman back into the Biff Bam Pow Batman to put it on screen. I mean, at what point did you just want to say like, you know what, forget it, we'll go with you guys and we'll throw a bunch of ampersands and things up on the screen and we'll give the goofy Batman. No, 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 no. no. no, no I know, that's, what, that's why, why you were the Batman's Batman. That's there, the- there were two missions that I took on. One was to, and let's go back to the night sure. in, in, in 1966. So I'm watching the show. I'm horrified that the world's laughing at Batman. And in our family basement den, at the end of that show, I made a vow. I made a vow like... You can hear the music. Like young Bruce Wayne. Yeah, you can hear the music. Vow, except he made his vow over the bloodied bodies of his parents, mm-hmm. and my parents were safe upstairs in the kitchen. That said, I said, somehow, someday, I'm going to show the world the true Batman. The Batman that Bill told me was created in 1939 to be a creature of the night, stalking deeply disturbed villains in the shadows. And I will find a way to erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture these three new words, pow, zap, and wham, which we started seeing everywhere. I saw it in my dreams and nightmares. Yeah. Uh, to the point, finally, in 1989, we make the first dark and serious Batman movie. And if, if you go back and look at a lot of the reviews, even the reviews of Frank Miller's um, Dark Knight Returns yeah. graphic novel, they typically started pow, zap, and wham. Batman turned serious. It's a condescending, but before that, you already had like Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill and all these people doing sub- serious subject matter in the seventies with Batman. You knew about it, and I knew about right. it. Right, the world at large did not know about it. The only image the entire world had, and that's the non-American comic book reading planet, sure. was the Powzap Wham, potbellied yeah. funny guy from the sixties. But the mid eighties, like by the time you got that movie, I mean, you saw this stuff and I want to talk about the 1979 early eighties script that you co-wrote where it was about Batman returning a middle-aged Batman returning because you saw this stuff before dark Knight returns. You saw before death in the family, these mid 80 huge things, but were you influenced by like the Denny O'Neill stuff where suddenly Speedy has a drug addiction and maybe Marvel influences you? You talk in the book about how Stan Lee's one of your heroes and the realism of the Marvel characters or the grounding of the Marvel characters. Like, did you want to take that approach to Batman? I argue that some of the people in the 70s were taking that approach to Batman. It's just like you said, Hollywood wasn't. But then, I don't know. You see the first 30 minutes of that Donner Superman with a Mario Puzo script. 
And nah, you have to think you have to think Tom that they Mankiewicz, were Tom Mankiewicz, but you have to think that they were somebody was taking comic books seriously. If you get those first thirty minutes are oh, fantastic. Okay, but you've you've just nailed it. You've just nailed it right there. First of all, there is nobody I respect more than Dick Donner. Dick, uh, besides being a great guy and a great talent, yeah, was the trailblazer. Nothing could have happened beyond Superman one and two if it wasn't for Dick Donner. Go back and look at Superman one. The Krypton scene. It's perfect. Serious. Incredibly economic. The Smallville scene. Serious. Like right out of a painting. But. It's perfect. The second he puts on the costume and he's in Metropolis, nobody can take it too seriously yeah. anymore. No, the, the wacky Lex stuff is. It's, it's a yeah. cat in a tree. It's whatever it is. It's a whole different tone. It is uh, uh, Otis. Yeah. And. Um, but Lex, my mom lives in whatever it was, uh, Hackensack. Um, it just didn't go there. Right. And it took 1989 with us, with Tim Burton, who was bold and daring. And we went for it to do dark and serious. And it, again, set in the context of the times, there had been no, no feature film ever like that. You watch it now, though. Wouldn't you watch them like Matt Reeves' work or you watch the, the Dark Knight trilogy before that? And you, you you watch those first two Burton movies and there's giant penguins and there's all sorts of stuff that I worry that like you try and do that today and have we slid too far into the seriousness is what I'm asking you. Michael. Absolutely like, not. Absolutely yeah. not. What, what you've got to once again acknowledge is that just like the comic books. Because I miss that stuff. I do miss the Bat family. I do miss some of the giant penny. I do miss some of that stuff in my bed. I, I understand. Yeah. But in 1989, well, let, let me put it this way. Yeah. Cinema at its best is a mirror of our society. You hold a mirror up to our society, warts and all, and cinema at its best reflects that thematically and in, in many ways. Joker is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. So in 1989, what was Batman? What was the Joker? What were comic books and superheroes? Well, let me tell you, in 1989, by and large, we were living in a black and white world of good versus evil. The Joker was the clown prince of crime. By the time Chris Nolan came in, this was post 9-11. Our world had changed. We were living in a gray world of order versus chaos. And the Joker was a modern day terrorist. He was an, a, a homicidal maniac reflecting the times in which we live. Think for a second thematically about that scene that Chris did um, where you have people on two ships. The boats, yeah. And you've got a button and you have to make a moral decision. Do you press the button to save your skin and blow up everybody else on the other boat or do you not? And the one comment that I've heard back from over the years more than anything else on the on the Dark Knight trilogy has been, you know, Mr. Uslan in the, in the darkness of that theater, sitting there, I was forced to look inside my own soul and think, what would I actually do? So what do you do when you have to make a moral choice and you're, um, the possibilities are bad or worse? Right. And people were coming to conclusions. A comic book movie, a superhero movie, has that kind of an impact, emotional impact, and thematic heft was incredible. Chris Nolan elevated what used to be called comic book movies to something you could call a great film. 
And I agree. I, I definitely agree. And I love that trilogy. And I am actually horrified by Twitter this past weekend. The people loving Matt Reeves so much that they go back and they start dating the Christopher Nolan trilogy that we all loved and that hit box office records. And I'm like, hey, for a character that's 80 years old with, with countless iterations from so many creators, turning into this to create a horse race just out of the recency bias of having just seen one trilogy and now having this new one, it's counterproductive. Yeah, look, look, let's go back to the comics. Yeah. In 1986, when Dark Knight Returns come out, you, you, you don't go back and say, oh, the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff was crap. It was awesome. Um, you don't say the Marshall Rogers, Steve Englehart stuff was crap or the Bob Kane and Bill Finger stuff was crap. You say, look, you watch the pieces of it coming together, reflecting the different times it is. Everything is due its respect. And without one piece, you don't get to the next piece. And, and it's just a reflection of that. I think it's a reflection of Twitter is what was going well, on that, this past weekend. That I can't it's answer like, for, but I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Each one of these pieces should be honored. And it's, it's just like I said one day to Mark Hamill. I said, you know, if they ever build the Mount Rushmore for the Joker, mm -hmm. I said, it's going to be Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, Joaquin Phoenix, and you, because you created the definitive voice of the Joker. And you can say that Kevin Conroy belongs in some form. Oh, of, if we're going to do the if Batman, do the Batman one, Rushmore, because, that's a whole other question. Like, that's, a that's a tough one. And I will not ask you to do that, no, sir. But, it should but be Kevin tough. Conroy is incredible in every iteration he's, he's the done of the definitive voice of batman right um and, and and has been he he is such a great human being in addition but the point is there's room to honor all of the greatness that has come before whether it's comic books movies or animation for that matter yes and when you see something you know you, you do the tim burton films and i mean michael we, we could talk forever um when you do these Tim Burton films, and then there is the story of Michael Keaton reading the script to the third one and not wanting to do it. And, or, and they look for another director in the Schumacher ones, and you get the Val Kilmer. And I think that Val Kilmer documentary that is up is heartbreaking. Did you see the I book? Seen it, it is. You got to be prepped for it, especially somebody who maybe knew Val as, as you were working with him. Seeing just where the state he's in now and then like him coming, like making amends for maybe some of the ways he had acted earlier on some of the films, like looking back at how he was as a younger person on films like Batman or films like uh, Dr. Moreau, et cetera. The doors, he was so incredible in the doors. Yeah, he, how talented he was. And you knew he was talented when you saw Top Secret. Um, it's, a, it, it, it's tough to see, but when you see the Tim Burton stuff shift to the Schumacher stuff and start to really go towards arguably the Biff Bam Pow stuff with a little bit more camp, a little bit more color. Um, what, what is going on there? I mean, I don't want to talk about how involved or not involved you are. I mean, you are the executive producer of these films. Um, you also have to respect like creators coming in and being a part of Batman too. All right. So, so let's deal with this in two parts. Yeah. However you want to do it. Number one, I have to say Joel Schumacher was one of the most decent, nicest, and talented human beings you would ever want to meet. And I think if you watch, like, what is it, Phone Booth for Colin Farrell, I and mean, if you watch Lost Boys, if you watch so many Schumacher movies, you can't knock Joel Schumacher's body of work. Yeah, Joel gets a lot of heat, I think, very unfairly. Um, so let's talk now, not about Batman, sure, but generally about the motion picture industry. Yeah. 
So generally in the motion picture industry, it's not like it was in the old, old days. What used to be just movie studios are now often conglomerates. They own different companies. They might own a theme park, a t-shirt company, a piece of a toy company. A news network. You've got Comcast Universal. You've got all these things. Lots of wheels to be greased. Sometimes, generally, in the motion picture industry, you have executives that become very enamored with toys and merchandising and Happy Meals. You guys didn't do any of yourself any favors in that 1989, man, because I bought the cereal, I had the toys, I had all of it. You greased the wheels for that one to happen. <laughs> and I'm glad you did Which, well with it. And we'll talk about that. As your friend, I'm glad you did well. We'll talk about the, the expansion of that line in a minute, because that's a whole other story. Um, so sometimes they become very enamored with that. Okay. And unfortunately, sometimes, generally in the motion picture industry, you have uh, people that say, okay, we've got to make movies that are lighter, brighter, family-friendly, toy-friendly. Sure. We have to listen to our dear friends in the toy business who are saying, if you're going to make a big adventure movie, we need three heroes. A bunch of set pieces. We need three villains. Yeah. Each one must have two costume changes and two vehicles. And my position is, at that point in time, the tail is wagging the dog. Yeah. And what you are making are two-hour infomercials for toys because something's got to be sacrificed if you're going to do that. And typically, it's story and character development. So if my position was always, how about if we just bring in the greatest filmmakers who have a love for Batman, a passion for Batman, and an understanding of Batman, have a vision for Batman whom we believe can execute a vision, and then make great movies. Toys will be sold anyway. Yes. Um, sometimes you win. Sometimes <laughs> you lose the arguments. Yeah. Um, there was a moment in time that, truth be told, I think it was one of the first drafts of Batman and Robin came in. And um, my poor head of development, FJ, he <laughs> DeSanto. I know, I know Mr. DeSanto. We sometimes when Ian's on the show joke about FJ. Um, and I remember, and we have a bone to pick with you. Ian and I both sat Christmas Day one year uh, watching you and FJ's Spirit in a theater. And um, happy to talk about that as well. We, we got to talk. We, he, Ian wants his money back. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not doing. <laughs> we had fun that day. Well, we did. <laughs> FJ, poor FJ, he was coming back from lunch just as I happened to toss the script across the room, and he opens the door and it just whizzes in front of his head, uh, hits a wall, and the. Pages just and go the, flying. The draft of Batman and Robin. Yeah. Um, and my dear Batman partner, Ben Melnicker. Ben yes. was my dad's age. And he's in the book. So you're going to want to pick up this book, Batman's Batman, because he's the person who said the phrase, you know what, Michael? You are the Batman's Batman because you just said no to the one yes we've gotten so far to make a Batman movie. And you got to read the book. But Michael said it because he was standing up for Batman and he didn't want to do a Biff Bam Pow film. Even though it meant a yes. It was never about the money. Right. It was always about the passion. You said no to the one yes that you had in this And it was two things about the integrity of the character and the integrity of the creators. Mm -hmm. And these guys had been denigrated for most of their careers. They were victims of Frederick Wortham and seduction of the innocent. That portion of the introduction that you have in this Batman's Batman is just... We've all dealt with it as filmmakers in Hollywood. I had a project over at Fox where it involved video gaming and gamers who were playing video gaming. And I got a note that said, one thing, um, what's a halo? 
the video gamers were playing Halo and we were actually making the series for an early iteration of the Xbox games online, like entertainment service that never ended up happening. But yeah, you were going to put Halo in the thing and have an executive not know what Halo was, was there. That says a lot. (laughs) So what you're saying, okay, continue. I'm sorry, sir. When Ben, what was Ben's reaction? You saw in this script. So Ben, God bless him. He was like a second father to me. And a legend in the movie business. He had started at MGM in late 1939. Mm-hmm. Uh, the M is the, one of the M's in MGM. I'm kidding. Do not print that. <laughs> That's, not <right. laughs> That's not true. <laughs> so Ben said to me, Michael, he goes, You're, I've never seen you down like this. And he said, when things go wrong, when things go bad, when something bad happens, you must say, this is the greatest thing that could have happened to me because, and then you fill in the blank. Mm. So he's sitting next to me, goes, say it. And you're saying it's like teeth. Your teeth are gritted. You're like, oh, don't worry. This is the greatest thing that could have happened to me because, and it took a minute or two, because they're going to get bitten by this one. And the next time we're going to get, the dark and serious version of Batman that I've always wa- that I've wanted. Yeah, after and, two Tim Burton movies, and they they start sliding towards selling Happy Meals. Yeah, and then there was this thing called Catwoman. Um, oh yeah, in, in that era as yeah. well. Um, but the Catwoman we saw this past weekend is incredible. Is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, what's the reviews? I had I had emotional inaccessibility issues with this such a gritty uh grim take on it but i gotta tell you geekscape is like listen to the episode we just did on it last 10 minutes what i liked about this iteration of the batman was where it can go now like this really felt like even though the batman is a year into being a batman in this in this reese version we won't spoil anything the potential of the sequels, you really start to see him not only become Batman, become Bruce Wayne and start to having to balance that duality of saying, Hey, I can't just be vengeance as I am in the open scene, opening scene of this movie. I have to be heroic. And I, in, in geekscapists who are maybe watching man of steel and wondering why Superman's not saving more people. And so that watching the dark Knight save people and be detective in Matt Reeves, those are seriously in the positive columns for me. Like those were really parts that I enjoyed in this Matt Reeves version and to just turn it into, you know, a a horse race between liked it, didn't like it. It was good. It was bad. It's not good or it's not bad people. It's just what you thought. There's 80 years of Batman. This guy saw it. He optioned it. He fought for it. There's going to be 80 more years of Batman spoilers. There's going to be 80 more years of Batman. Just remember Hopefully, like all of us, hopefully, like all of us, people evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether in real life or in the cinema, people, characters evolve. Yeah. And in, in this Matt Reeves one, you, the evolution is is very taut. And um, and so be prepared for that. You know, you're not, you're not, you got to be ready. I, I'm really excited to see what happens in the, in the, in the next couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel Greenbaum's on Facebook and he says, hey. Love the Batman. Really enjoyed the cerebral take on Batman. Aspects of it reminded me a lot of Batman Year One. Were there any specific Batman runs that inspired this film? I mean, obviously, like Long Halloween and the the Jeff Loeb Tim Sale stuff. Yeah, I I think uh, that Matt Reeves has uh, you know pretty much gone public. Dylan Clark with uh, a a lot of the things. Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Mm -hmm. Ego, um, 
uh, Hush, Long Halloween, uh, were all influences. And, uh, oh my God, I even remember when I was a little kid, there was a character called the Zodiac Master. Mm Mm-hmm. Better left forgotten, I might add, <laughs> but he was he was out there, right up there with Calendar Man and the Polka Dot Man and uh, that era of Batman. And we've got you know the the potential with the history of the Waynes and Arkham. We'll see some of the Court of Owls, some of the newer you know Scott Snyder stuff that was exciting in Love the books. Scott Snyder. That stuff is really great, and there's plenty to mine. And again, you know, with a Batman that dark, having the addition one at a time or all at once of a bat family to bring some more light and having Bruce as a patriarch as he gains responsibility of being Bruce, I think is a beautiful place that there's, it's right for potential. And especially in this current iteration to really show us the lengths to which this character can go and, and grow over the next couple of movies. So um, as you're, as you're watching it this weekend, was this the one that you, I mean, all, every single one of these Batman are Batman that you enjoyed. I imagine you're watching the Schumacher ones and you're still taking pieces that you enjoy out of the Schumacher ones as well. I think now more than ever you yeah. can. And, and this is a funny thing, but it's, it's worthy of making the point. Because you're fighting for the, the, the Batman that you wanted to see in 19, in the 1960s. I feel like you've gotten it. We have gotten it. Okay. We've gotten it more than once. Yes. Um, and as a result, things are completely different than they were in 1966. In 66, that Batman TV show was the only iteration of Batman the world knew. The joke, the one to laugh at. Now we have so many different interpretations of Batman where people around the world, I'm talking about transcending borders, I'm talking Absolutely. about cultures, yeah, no. can seize on the one version of Batman that to them individually is there a true Batman? Which is your favorite foreign Batman bootleg when you watch things like the Pakistani Batman or the Brazilian Batman? You've seen these videos <laughs> of them doing like bootleg videos and like Indian stuff of like Batman. And don't forget Batwoman. <laughs> They've got like magic powers and they fight Spider-Man and all this weird stuff. Very weird stuff. Which is your favorite of that? Um, I probably can't answer that without <laughs> a whole host of Warner Brothers lawyers <laughs> Um, We're not optioning it. Yeah, um, <laughs> he's fighting Italian Spider-Man. No, but, but, the, that. but the point here is important, and that is today you've got all these different interpretations yeah. out there. You've got the Burton Batman, the Schumacher Batman, the Nolan Batman, the Phillips Joker, the Lego Batman. The Lego. My Batman. personal favorite on-screen Batman is Lego because I got my Bat family. I got him in the context of the of the Justice League in the DC universe, and Bruce, he's kind of weird. <laughs> and you know, you're not laughing at him; you're laughing with him. It's different. I loved it. It is different. I love, I love those Lego too. Batman. Absolutely love it. Is it okay for me to say that it's my favorite Batman? Yeah. It was. It was. Oh, it was Keaton before that, but that Maybe Will Arnett one again. Come November, I can't. You know, and I and I feel like, you know, we'll see with Flashpoint. We'll see with the with the Batwoman. Uh, is it a Batgirl movie? It's a Batwoman movie. Batgirl. Batgirl movie. Like seeing him take on a patriarchal older Batman style. Like people have been asking for that kind of stuff. I I think it's going to be awesome. I it is going to be awesome. And um, the 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 wrap up to that is that so now I embrace the 1966 Batman TV show. I embrace mm-hmm. the animated movie Batman meets Scooby Doo, Batman Brave and Bold. I embrace the Schumacher works as works that can be given to children Mm -hmm. or young people who can 
but through those means can be indoctrinated first initially into the world of Batman. And then as they grow up, they can move on up to the movie versions, the video game versions, Batman, the animated series. Um, And and now you've got like your starter set for younger kids. And it's not the only iterations that are out there. I kind of wish we'd gotten that Jack Black Green Lantern movie. Do you remember the rumors of that thing? You should read about my Green Lantern movie that wasn't, which is in Batman's Batman, my new book. Hey, listen, I just got that book last week. Like, <laughs> I will read it. I mean, I know my buddy Ralph Oppel was talking to me over the weekend on Twitter, and he's a big Green Lantern fan, and he's still waiting for that version that he wants on screen. Um, I definitely bought the Blu-ray of the last one, Ryan Reynolds, because I got a Batman skin for Arkham City on <laughs> if I bought the Blu-ray. So I do own it. Um, but uh, yeah, we're getting all these iterations. I want to go back to your story, though. You Did you watch Licorice Pizza in the uh, Bradley Cooper, sure. John Peters? <laughs> like, um, you, knew, you know John or knew John Peters because he was integral to you getting this material, the Batman option done so you could put it on screen. He and Peter Goober, they're a part of this process. You were talking, we were talking, uh, my buddy, good buddy, Jim Pagranelli gave me notes um, from, uh, what what book was it? This is Glenn Weldon's book, uh, Cape Crusade. And you talk a bit in that, you know, book and, and uh, Glenn talks a bit about that journey you went on with John Peters and with Peter Goober to get this thing on the screen, this 10 year plus journey, when you watch licorice pizza and see Bradley Cooper acting like John Peters, who's going to play you in the movie? When somebody does a version of Michael Uslan on the screen, uh, Jason Sudeikis, not bad, not bad. I mean, when you're watching this, this is somebody, you know, you're new like 40 years ago and you're watching this from 40 years ago. Plus, what are you thinking watching Licorice Pizza and the Bradley Cooper stuff? So how about them Mets? <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. What you, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I'm waiting to see when the spring training is going to finally be It ain't going to happen. God, I don't I'm know about the MLB. Uh, I did love Licorice Pizza. I thought that sequence was crazy. And, and I, yeah. No. Um, okay. So you, this guy, you got to read this book, The Batman's Batman. I'm clearly working my way through it, but just navigating the frustrations of Hollywood and trying to make sure that you don't let go of the rope on something you cared about for so long. It can be frustrating. One thing that you did put in the book is this concept of the 13 P's of producing. Like, can you talk a little bit about the 13 P's of producing? Because they kind of make this, they create the spine and structure of this book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what is a producer? Um, I describe it as boss, mother, father, camp counselor, and shrink. Um, I talk about more about the losses than the victories in this, in this book. There are more losses of victories. Far more time, losses. Easily. Far more losses. And the things that mean so much to you that you spend so many years trying to bring to the screen. And for one crazy reason or another, maybe after five years, eight years, 10 years, in the last minute, it just wilts on the vine and goes away. Yeah. Um, how do you come back from that? How do you deal with it? So one of the things you need is perseverance. You've got to have this high level for frustration. And um, as I learned the hard way, I thought producing was going to be a war. And every day I would go out to battle and fight for my projects. It's not. It's a siege. Mm. It's a siege in which you have to survive what we call development hell. And you have to dig a foxhole and you have to put on a helmet and hunker down. And the most important decision you can make is who do you allow in that foxhole to watch your back? 
Yeah, because you got to split the pie with people who you bring in a pot, who you have to get the heck out of your foxhole. You have to start paying them to go away. That's a big thing. That's a horrible thing. Yeah, you need another P, passion. Yeah, if you don't have passion, you're toast. You're absolute toast. This whole industry, producing the whole industry, is based on two things, three things: passion, your ability to persevere, and storytelling. That's it. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. So when I used to be a camp counselor, I was a junior counselor at a day camp when I was um, starting at age 14. And then I became a senior counselor. I had 31 boys who were four and five years old. And it was my job to keep them seated at the table after lunch for a half an hour before we took them in swimming. Now, I challenge anybody. Your stomach will turn. I challenge your mothers and your wives and I mean, how do you keep 31 four and five-year-old boys seated for half an hour? Handcuffs and lots of rope. No. Oh, sorry. You tell them interactive Batman stories. That's a much better idea. Let's and, go with that. And it keeps them rooted, but you've, you've got to know how to communicate with them and your eyes have got to be wide and you've got to be passionate about it. And then when you see their attention beginning to wane, you got to get in their face and pull them back in. So when I go to pitch right now, mm-hmm. um, many people, for many people, pitching is a terrifying experience. Terrifying experience. I think it's fun. I, I think it's the greatest yeah. thing in the world because I can't wait to get in there because I have a story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see executives that are holding my career uh, by its throat, depending on what happens in the next 30 minutes. I see myself going in with a little campfire and all my five and four-year-old campers sitting around, and I'm going to tell them a story. Yeah. You've got to be able to communicate your passion. Connect with them a bit. That's exactly it. When I walk into a pitch, and I tell this to people, the first thing I do when I walk in, I'm also like the equalizer who like sets his watch and like sees everything in the room. I'm looking for either personal effects about families who can talk about family, or I'm looking for basketball stuff Mm. where I can start talking basketball because I love talking basketball. And I'm suddenly a fan of their favorite team when I find out who that favorite team is because it just sets the stage for us to have some common ground. And then I feel comfortable that I can pitch and get to know this person and relate to them on what their values are. The industry term for this, it's a technical term. It's called the schmooze. Yes, the schmooze, baby. Five to seven minutes. You've got that amount of time to find a way to bond with the people that you are meeting with. For the do you first use time. baseball in that schmooze? Because you're a big sometimes, baseball fan. Sometimes yeah. Sometimes I do. I usually start out, there's a few questions. I can find a bond with almost anybody mm. in about five questions. Yeah. And it's like, oh, where'd you, where are you from originally? Yeah. Uh, where'd you go to school? Um, those are two good ones. Those, those are, yeah. The, those are go-tos. Those, those are great. And you start from there and by God, you'll find a way. Case in point. Yeah. Sam Raimi. I go to meet him for the first time. When was this? Uh, early 2000s, I want to say. Could you imagine, like, wasn't he up for director of... Um, he was just he about was... to start Spider-Man right. 3. Well, yeah. That's, that yeah. was when it well, was. Well, Sony was about to make him start. <laughs> that writer strike did not do them any favors. And, I mean, you, go, you look back now on what they did with the Spider-Man No Way Home, and I love that they made all of those redeemed and valid and celebrated all of them, whether you liked them or not. You know, I love that. I love the movie. But was he not up for directing The Shadow? Because what that, y'all did with 1989. We were partners. Yeah, so in 1989, like, you, y'all go out and you make this Tim Burton stuff. You really gave me, I, this is my childhood now, with the Batman. I remember sitting in the aisle. The, the place was sold out. I sat in the aisle to watch that 89 Batman opening night. But then from there, 
my real love, who I super love and loved having Kevin Eastman on the show, the Ninja Turtle movies that came out because of that, the Dick Tracy movies, you all really started that up. The Mask. Rocketeer is so damn good. My buddy John Arcudi, creator, co-creator of The Mask, and the, I love the Jim Carrey mask. And then came The Crow and Men in All Black. of that stuff. Um, and you can say like barbed wire. You got some barbed wire in there and you got a couple of the that ones. But Sam Raimi's The Shadow, I heard that he was up for directing The Shadow. He said he was business partners with he Raimi. He was partners. We were partners. Was he going to make The Shadow? Yes, absolutely. We had it set up at a studio and we have a great first draft by Siavash Farahani. Great writer. And, um, <laughs> oh man, how much time do we have? We can talk whatever you want. All right. So let me back up. Yeah. So CAA, Creative Artists Agency calls me in. They said, Mike, we represent uh, Sam Raimi. He is a huge, huge shadow fan. We know you control the rights to the shadow. Um, we'd like to set up a meeting with you and guys. Is that how you set those up at Dynamite Comics? Remember oh, this was way I know, but you've got pictures in your in Batman's Batman of all the, and I have those Dynamite Comics issues where it's like Lone Ranger, Shadow, all that stuff. Nikki, John Cassidy artwork? Yeah. Were you, were, getting, were you responsible no, for getting? Were you responsible for getting those artists? That is so smart. Nikki Baruchi Those John Cassidy and Alex Ross pieces of artwork were so nice. They were I had to own them. Incredible. Good calls um, on those. I had written the Shadow at DC Comics for Denny O'Neill. I, I did issue number nine and eleven. I did the first mm-hmm. meeting, the Shadow and the Avenger, ever. Good job, Nikki. Uh, and then <laughs> Nikki called me back. He said, "I got the rights to the Shadow. I want you to write graphic novels and comic books." I said, "I'm too busy, Nikki. I can't do it." He says, "What'll it take to get you to do it?" I said, um, okay, when I was a kid growing up, the first dramatic radio shows I heard on reruns every Sunday at Newark, New Jersey, Sunday afternoons, was The Shadow, The Green Hornet, Lone Ranger. I said, I would love to write the first ever meeting of The Shadow and The Green Hornet. Mm -hmm. He goes, I'll call you back. Two days later, he said, I got the rights. And I wound up writing The Shadow, Green Hornet, Dark Knight's graphic novel. You're just losing your mind at that point. So 35 years after I had written The Shadow for DC Comics, I was back writing The Shadow. And I was close with Walter Gibson, the creator. It's incredible. And I got all this information from Walter, which was very helpful. And I always, whenever I write The Shadow, I pretend Walter's looking over my shoulder. The Billy Zane Phantom. Loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I think as a kid, I, I just wanted that skull ring. My Like... I didn't want my brothers to have the skull ring because that means I'd have skull impressions on my face. But the skull, every kid wanted that skull ring, you know, or a legion or a legion ring, legion of superhero ring. Or a power ring. Or a power ring. Rings were good. Um, so tell me the Sam Raimi story. I'm sorry. I get, right. I get exuberant with this That's stuff. That's okay. So um, I go over to meet Sam Raimi and, uh, and FJ was with me. Yeah. And uh, go over there and we sit down and we're doing the schmooze. And he said to me, Uslin, it's a very unusual name. I said, yeah, I know it is. He said, are you related to a Dr. Paul Uslin, an eye doctor in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan? I said, that's my brother. Where Ramey's from. Yeah. yeah. I go, where did he come to my brother? He goes, well, <laughs> when I was growing up, my mom used to take us into Ann Arbor to get our glasses and our eyes examined from Dr. Uslin. I go, oh that's my insane. God. I that's pick up insane. my cell phone. I call my brother right there sitting with Sam. Paul, does the name Sam Ramey ring a bell? He goes, oh, sure. I, I took care of the whole family. A very nice boy. He goes, whatever happened to that kid? I said, I'm sitting here with the kid. Um, that was number one. Number two, we start to talk. I start to talk with Sam. I said, Sam, is your vision for the shadow the pulp magazine version, the radio show version, or some hybrid? And he said, well, actually, Michael, my biggest influence was the comic book. So I was a huge shadow comic book uh, fan. Uh, I said, well, like what from the comic books? And he starts to talk. 
And I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I reach into my briefcase and I pull out my two shadow issues that I wrote at DC. I said, Sam, what you're talking about? I wrote this. Mm -hmm. These are from some of the issues that I wrote. He goes, Michael, do you know, we, you do know we already met. And I, I was embarrassed. I okay. said, no, Sam, I'm sorry. I, I don't. He goes, do you remember speaking at Indianapolis Comic-Con in 1972? I said, well, wait a minute. I, I said, yeah, that was the first Comic-Con I was ever invited to speak to as a professional. I just started writing The Shadow, and I was about to start writing Detective Comics. And he said, um, when I read in a fanzine that you were going to be speaking about The Shadow in Indianapolis, I begged my folks. They drove me to Indianapolis. I was in the room listening to you give your first Comic-Con talk. That's incredible. And he said, afterwards, I came up to you. He said, you talked to me for 20 minutes as if I was the only person in the room. He said, you signed my comics. He goes, I followed your whole career. I have all your stuff. Let's do this together. How, how did he not end up with directing on the chat? Like what? It's in the book. I'm sorry. So imagine this. You've got a great script. You've got Sam Rainey and you've got some executive. And is Sam coming off of Universal's work with the Army of Darkness there? Uh, with uh, Dark, Dark Man? No, no. Is he coming off of Dark Man or is he coming off of Army of Darkness? Uh, it would have been Army of Darkness because yeah. Dark Man was yeah. in the past. And that was his homage to the show. That was his, in that, I feel like that was his swing at the bat of doing a comic book film. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the guys at the studio says, well, guys, Great script, but period pieces don't sell. Get out of here. Everybody in the industry knows period pieces don't sell. I hate all the re stupid reasons for people to say no. This it's is just garbage. This is true about the industry. Nothing works until it works. <laughs> right. And then they think you're a genius. Yeah. And it's like, well, that could have been you, dummy. For years, they were telling you, years, you can't do female-driven movies. People don't go to see them. You can't do this. You can't do this. And then something hits, and then all of a sudden, it's fine. So I said, well, wait a minute. What about Titanic? And he goes, well, that's different. I go, why is that different? He said, that's history. He said, all right. What about Indiana Jones? He says, that's different. I go, why is that different? He says, well, that's Spielberg. Uh, yeah, it's so, one thing or another with these people. Yeah, so then Captain America, the first Avenger, opens up. I call him. He goes, hi. I said, hi. What about Captain America? And I hung up the phone. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just Well, that's Joe that Johnson. Era. It's like, stop with this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that, was the, that was the era. That was a moment, and it killed us. And Joe Johnson doing his, like that Rocketeer movie. I loved it. I awesome. loved everything about it. That Rocketeer movie is awesome. That Joe Johnson does. And I don't think we talk about the Rocketeer movie as much as we should. We could have had a shadow movie that was basically the pulp version with some alterations through the DC Comics series. Sure. You know, um, we would have had the Kent Allard stuff. We had the, the agents treated the right way. Uh, we did not go with Shawan Khan as the villain. We went with Mr. Remorse, mm -hmm. uh, Benedict Stark, uh, the Prince of Evil. Wow. And um, man, you know, and we knew where we needed to go in the next draft to nail it. Um, but that was it. Decisions get made between drafts. And it. Like, how much do you want to fight for that stuff as years of your life are like going by and you see opportunities and you've got windows to things. And sometimes, like, if there's a time when you thought that you should have taken a left in retrospect, but you took a right, like, which is the one that burns sometimes? At the end of the day, ye who control the money control the final decision-making mm -hmm. process. And that's the way it is. Yeah. I'm 
the the idea that that Sam Raimi shadow got away from us, who knows? But you know what? Like Sam laid a lot of the framework for what became the Marvel universe with that with that Spider Man stuff. It was mm-hmm. phenomenal, and seeing him come back to it with this Doctor Strange movie, I think that people are super stoked for this Doctor Strange thing. And obviously that was set with the multiverse and all this stuff. That, I mean, I'm this is the golden age of geekdom, wouldn't you say? Because we've seen a few golden ages of geekdom. You and Tim Burton were responsible for one of them. Uh, you're talking to a total Steve Ditko fanatic. Yeah. I have saved every one of my Steve Ditko Spider-Man run and every one of my Steve Ditko Doctor Strange runs. Um, I, I, I pour over them. I have since I was a little kid. Absolutely incredible work. And the fact that it's Spider-Man and Doctor Strange leading the charge cinematically, that's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. And these, you know, Doctor Strange is a character that people were neither here nor there on 15 years ago. Oh, you haven't read the Doctor Strange part in my new book? No, I listen, man, I'm just going, I mean, I had I was offered to produce a Doctor Strange TV series with Wes Craven. Marvel was crazy with those rights back in the day. (laughs) They're throwing them here and there. That would have been cool, though. That would have been cool. Um, Wes said, I love Wes Craven. Wes was a dear, dear friend and a creative, brilliant, brilliant creative man. And um, he said, okay, I don't know really anything about Dr. Strange. You roll up the sleeves on that one. So I said, okay, here's season one. Here's the hunter and the hunted which was the early Doctor Strange versus Baron Mordo. And what network would have gone with that? Um, this was New World. Was, yeah. was the company behind it. They owned Marvel in at the, the time. In the, in that, they're the ones who sold off like Fantastic Four and this and that. Did they not? Uh, and you know Kenny Johnson. You know the guy. You're you friends with Kenny Johnson? I'm he, not. He used to show around Incredible Hulk over at, you know, at A back little in the bit day. before my time. We should connect you with Kenny Johnson because he's got great stories, the Incredible right. Hulk stuff and stories like this. We'd yeah. love to meet him. Kenny's awesome. And he lives right up in, I think he lives in Tarzana. He's a writer like yourself. He writes books now. There's a whole thing about Tarzana in the past today. (laughs) So continue, continue, please. So um, season one would have been that real early stuff of uh, Baron Mordo versus Doctor Strange and Doctor Strange on the run. At the end of season one, we had him meet the dreaded Dormammu. Yeah. Then season two was that with the introduction of Nightmare. Yes. And then it would ultimately wind up by season four into the Steve Englehart, Frank Bruner stuff where Dr. Strange meets God. Mm-hmm. You know, that, it got that really hippie. That stuff, I was like, yo, you Marvel creators are definitely hitting the wacky tobacco over in the bullpen during the 70s. Yeah. Uh, to the strains of iron butterflies in a gun. Yeah, like yeah. some of that stuff in the 70s, Dr. Strange, but and like we, Silver Surfer, like you can just see it. But we didn't have to have him actually meet God. We would have brought in the character Eternity mm-hmm. and and he would have subbed. And that's where we were. We would have gone. I feel like Marvel's going to ultimately start bringing in those, in Eternals, whatever you thought of Eternals, this and that. But um it's okay. I think it's okay to get weird with some of that Marvel stuff and really show like characters like Eternity and these cosmic entities that are older than time and how they control things. And Celestials are just the tip of the spear on that stuff. I don't like cookie cutter movies. Right. That's one of the things that could kill the goose that laid the golden egg for all of us. That's why I love Deadpool. I love Guardians of the Galaxy to push the envelope, take chances, or bold. And Did you watch the Peacemaker series on HBO Max? I have not seen it yet. That's a more James Gunn stuff where he's taking these 
D-level characters. And I mean, remember where Guardians of the Galaxy were up until Epting and those guys redid that? I was one of the 17 people that bought it. Exactly. And you're sitting there going, wait, wait, that's not Yondu. Yondu's blue with a fin on his head. Like, what is, like, like really a big fin. And you're sitting there going, like, that's not Drax. That's not Drax the Destroyer. Drax is kind of weird. And like, yeah. And, and I thought that was a genius take. Uh, I would less like to say that my conversation with Farscape creator, um, it was um, Rogney O'Bannon's coming up on the Geekscape channel. And I got to tell you, I think the Guardians of the Galaxy in that, well, mainly not James Gunn, but that whole Epting run of the Annihilation Wave and all that stuff with the uh, with the new Guardians of the Galaxy that came around 2000, 2002, 2003. I feel like that was really influenced by Farscape. Remember the Farscape sci-fi series? I do. I, I do. It. It's amazing how, many, how much I remember and how much I'm starting to forget, which is yeah. really, you know, yeah, interesting but- yeah, no, uh, we're starting to, we're, I, I have this video where I sat down with Rockney and we talk, like we're talking now about Farscape, one of my favorite sci-fi series, and that's hitting the channel soon. And I just like talking to creative people like you about all this. I mean, look at us geeking out. That's kind of why we built Geekscape, is just to be able to geek out <laughs> on stuff. Okay, listen, I got tons of stuff I wanted to I mean, that, that relationship you developed in 1989 with Stan Lee. And oh, that started way before that. I know, but in 1989, you finally get a little bit of attention with Marvel, don't you feel? Oh, before that. No, 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 before that. Okay. Um, wow. Like, well, um, like, it's like, well, now they can help, you know, you can help them a little bit in Hollywood, or what was the story there with, with Marvel? There's three Marvel stories in my new book. Yeah. One about the time I um, bought from them all interactive and internet rights to all characters in the Marvel library for $5,000. There was that one. They're just trying to keep the lights on over there? Like, what's going on? No, there's a whole... I know. Again, it's a context of the time thing. I was one of the only producers who began working in the early 80s in interactive video discs. That's cool. That's cool. And it was about to bring them into that brave new world of tech. Like the Dragon's Lair game that they did over there? Remember that game? Yeah, sure. Um, No, this was when Pioneer and RCA Video Productions, one had laser discs. Yeah, and that's the Dragon's Lair game. And one played with a stylus. Mm. And then Dragon's Lair was the first arcade version right. that w- that came out. And Mad Dog McCree on the video stuff and, later on. And, and then it was, um, what, God, what was the one with the bombs that just keep dropping uh, on the arcade game? Yeah, sure, sure. I can't even remember all the names. And then the Star Wars, finally, the Star Wars first video game came out. It's all just lines for the most part. Yeah, everything was lines. Super cool, Lines and dots. But that was the world we were living in. I try to buy Marvel. Um, when it went bankrupt the second time, I wow. had an opportunity to buy it for before, $95 million. Before Toy Biz bought it? Uh, before, yeah. Uh, right before then, that whole story is documented in my book. The Toy Biz stuff is nuts. And how they got around the income tax from China by making the mutants dolls. <laughs> and they said, oh, mutants aren't humans. Because I think there was a higher import tax for G.I. Joe human figures than there were for teddy bears. And to avoid it, Marvel lawyers were like, uh, the Marvel, the mutants are not actually human. So we're going to put them under the import tax of like teddy bears. <laughs> Those are technically teddy bears just so they could pay less on the import tax on the toys being made in China. Well, we can talk about toys, uh, the Batman toys. Uh, I got a call from Kenner, which we're doing our Batman toys. Yeah. This was after the first movie. And they said, Michael, we've got a big problem. Can you be in Cincinnati for a big meeting with us tomorrow morning? We really need you. I said, yeah, what's the problem? 
He said, um, we have this great idea for a new line of toys that would make, he said, we can't do what we did in 89 with one Batman figure and one Joker figure. We need a whole line yeah, of, of we need guys. need to have like Ice Batman and well, he yeah, said, we, Repelling we've, Batman. We've got a red Batman now, mm-hmm. a green one, a gold one, a silver one, a white one. And DC Comics just turned us down. And they said it violates, he said it violates your contract that you made with them because you have to show everything depicted the way they're depicted in the comic yeah, books. Otherwise, you're exploiting it. You can't yeah, do it. Right. So I said, okay. I'll be there next morning, show up. They bring me the prototypes for all these toys. They're wonderful. And he said, everything we're going to do is banked on this. And they said, no, uh, is there anything we can possibly do? I said, of course. He said, you have no problem here. And they look at me and go, what do you mean we have no problem? And I was prepared. I took out from my collection, the rainbow Batman, the zebra Batman, the polka dot Batman and the strange costumes of Batman story, which had him in the frozen North in a white costume in camouflage. It had him in the jungle in a green costume in camouflage. And I go, there you are boys. And this was a problem created by the toy company or or by DC. Well, the problem was by DC because DC told them, but DC didn't know their own product at that point. (laughs) There's a lot of Batman stories. That that was incidental, a couple of incidental stories, but, According to my contract I had with them, they had, had to, be to be proven as on the page in yeah. the comic books. Well, there you go. DC's was focused on the, the and gray and the uh, blue costume, right? And they had gone ahead and incorporated kind of the black costume by that point uh, that into that the y'all comics created, yeah. and the look of Gotham City from the first movie into the comics. Um, but they went back to DC, and the next day it was okay. I I got to tell you that Neil Adams stuff is that was beginning for me is seeing the gray and blue Batman, just the one that would lurk with the gargoyles and look out of the city. I thought that late seventies, eighties stuff was so good. It was so good, but look at the impact it had on Jim Aparo Mm -hmm. and Irv Novick. I mean, there were other people that were also drawing Batman that were absolutely inspired. And that's the Lego Batman. The Lego Batman is a blue and gray Batman. Yeah. He's wearing the blue and gray. Yeah. like, that's my Batman. (laughs) <laughs> Since the Civil War, I have had no trouble with blue and gray. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> okay, so I got I have so much, but we'll we'll just catch up another time. Like I can't keep you here. I talked to you about the diamond com- the dynamite comics because I have a fond place in my heart for those John Cassidy and Alex Ross covers. Well, all right, let, let me just go from there. Um, okay. <laughs> I, so I did um, William Goldman and Shazam. We got to talk about that. Crazy I did the Shadow Green Hornet mm-hmm. Dark Knights graphic novel for Nikki at Dynamite. He said, this is great. He goes, I want you to do another one. I said, Nikki, I can't. I just don't have time. I'm producing. I'm writing. He says, what would it take to get you to come back and do another one? I said, well, I said, in 80 years, Condé Nast, Street and Smith never teamed up their three big pulp heroes in one story. I said, if you could get the rights for me for the first time in 80 years to do the first team up of Doc Savage, The Shadow, and The Avenger, that I couldn't say no. Yeah. Two days later, he called me back. He goes, I got the rights. That's incredible. So I did that. Yeah. Justice Incorporated. Um, and then he said, okay, I want you to do another one. I said, I can. I'm too busy. He said, what will it take? Gonna take I said, shadow. in, in 80 years, <laughs> since, since the Depression, they split the rights. The same guy created the Green Hornet, created uh, the Lone Ranger. Yeah. The Green Hornet was created to be the modern day urban version of the Lone Ranger. Was, was he a direct descendant in the books? He was the yeah. grandnephew. That's it. Of the Lone, right. uh, of the lone Ranger. Uh, Geekscape is, I'm about a mile wide, but an inch deep on some of this stuff. Okay. But so. the rights were, were separated since the yeah. 30s. 
I said, if you could pull together those rights so for the first time the Reed family saga could be told mm -hmm. and show how the Lone Ranger passed the torch to the Green Hornet, I would do that. Took him 10 days. Yeah, Ten but that's later, still that's so fast by Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> that's so fast. He goes, I got the rights. <laughs> Go do it. Yeah. So I wound up doing those three graphic novels of Dynamite. Did you enjoy that last, like, um, Lone Ranger film. I talk about it in my book. I, I, um, I, as a big fan of, I think the general is like the Buster Keaton general is so awesome fabulous. that the ending of that Lone Ranger movie, which is just the general on crack, is like one of my favorite sequences. But that movie didn't do so well, and I don't know. I mean, I enjoyed it. Did you? I kind of, I listen. I when I when I saw that the general sequence on crack, I knew exactly what they were doing, and I was loving it because I think more people should watch Buster Keaton's The General. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. I have not walked out of a movie since Barabbas with Anthony Quinn when I was about eleven you, years old. Oh yeah, but the Lone Ranger for you probably meant a lot more than a Lone oh Ranger for God. me. I'm so sorry for your loss. I I watched that Lone Ranger movie. I said, "This is it." I've got to walk out for the first time since I was 11. I got up out of my seat, went down the aisle to leave, and realized I was on an airplane. <laughs> you pull the you pull the rip, you just jump out. So I thought about it, went back to my oh, seat. Oh no! And you forced yourself through the rest of down, it. Sat down, moved the moved the little control, and oh, they have the Green Hornet with Seth Rogen. And what did you think of that one? I jumped. I'm so sorry. That's, if, are we going to see these characters again? Yes, these pulp characters that I love because I mean, you start to hear about the fact that they're doing Zorro, but Zorro in the future, and this and that. And I just got to start. A friend of mine has the Green Hornet, Michael Helfand, and he's mm -hmm. doing it with Universal. And you can trust Michael. He's a good guy. He understands this stuff. Because I love the Shadow. I love the Phantom. I love the Green Hornet. And that's the stuff that I love about Batman. When I started watching this Matt Reeves one, and I was very like skeptical of how gritty and grim it was because just where we are currently in this, you know, I'm like, do we need this right now? Yeah. I think a lot of people do need it and people love this movie. So go enjoy it. When I start seeing Robert Pattinson's Batman being a detective, I was like, okay, if I needed an end to the movie, that's the end. That's what I enjoy. But then by the end of it, I started wanting him to show just that gradual turn towards being a hero and, no spoilers, Geeks Gamers. But by the end, I was like, I want to see what the next movie is. I want to see where this goes. And I feel like because it was such a – I feel like I'm watching a clenched fist with this movie. And I'm waiting for, for it to open and see what's inside. Waiting for it to open. It's just so ter like tense. and in the It's such a narrowly navigated film that I was like, I want to see this open up. And I started getting the promise of that in the end. That really got me into the idea that I'm going to love the next one. Oh, everybody's saying they can't wait for it. Their imaginations are sparked thinking what it's going to be, which way it's going to go. In the HBO Max stuff, we got ourselves a, maybe a Penguin series, maybe a Gotham PD series. I like the Brubaker stuff and that stuff that they do with the Gotham PD in the comics. Like, let's, that was that Brubaker that wrote this and that stuff? Uh, yeah, I believe like, so. I want to see some of that stuff. And I think that if you have a parallel series with you know, over the next couple of years, whenever they get around to doing the next Batman movie, maybe Reeves does another movie, comes back, whatever these guys do. I think that we'll be ready for, I think it'll have, well, we can catch up with Bruce a year, a couple of years later and see where he is in his evolution 
from what we saw at the end of this film. As long as if you just see Teen Titans go to the movies, it's so hilarious. It's hilarious, written for. And fan that had boys. some Deadpool stuff in there too. It has everything. That was ripping on everything. Only cameo in Take a DC no Comics movie. prisoners on that stuff. Uh, as long as we don't get the utility belt in its own TV series, uh, you know, that, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, there's a, there's a certain point. Remember when you're a kid and you have the Oreos and you start to dip it too much, turn soggy, and it ruins the milk and the Oreo. <laughs> I feel like sometimes with these properties, when you start over dipping the Oreo. He's like, come on. Like you said, like some of the studios just want to start selling toys and the Oreo gets soggy and it falls Two apart. Two biggest dangers to everything we all do and love. Number one, cookie cutter movies yeah. and TV. Number two, oversaturation. Yeah. Those are the two things we all have to be on guard for. I'm surprised we haven't hit the oversaturation, but I got to tell you the skill level of these films. And I don't think it's just the computer graphics and the technical ability to finally do these things properly. I think it's the storytelling. We've got some great storytellers who grew up on this stuff, and they're treating it right. They're kind of following in your footsteps, Michael, of saying, like, why aren't people taking this seriously? They grew up with Death in the Family. They grew up with some of these more serious – I mean, the X-Men and the stuff where it's, like, all about, like – what is it god man or man kills god what was that storyline with the with the preacher and x-men and it was all about like the x-men being like a metaphor for race and homosexuality all this stuff like we have some serious themes in these things and we're starting to see them on screen but we've seen, we've seen them. I mean, when you think of that first X Men movie starting in a concentration camp. when I saw that scene, I thought it was I was like they they got it. Mm-hmm. I think this movie's going to get it. And yeah. remember when those costumes showed up on like Ain't It Cool News? <laughs> remember when the X Men costumes showed up on Ain't It Cool News a couple <laughs> it was months earlier? And people were like freaking out. You know, people were freaking out on Ain't It Cool News, and they're like, "This is going to stink." Where's the yellow? What the hell? And they made a joke about the yellow. And I think like having Brian Singer, who's somebody who his sexuality is not in the norm at the time, and he is a minority in that sense, to do a story about minorities. When I saw that opening and it was opening in Auschwitz or one of these concentration camps and you see young Eric Lencher in the snow, I was like, yeah, you got it. You nailed it. You nailed it. This isn't going to be some dumb, dumb, no offense, Fox, but like you got it. They they know what this movie is about. And I think it's important to know what these movies are about. It's it's essential. Um, I'll never forget. End of 89, I get a call from Jim Galton, who was the president of Marvel. He says, Michael, uh, Joe Calamari, who is their wonderful, wonderful head of business affairs, <clears throat> said, Joe and I want to take you to lunch. Okay. So take me to lunch at one of the most expensive restaurants in New York City. And they order a, a bottle of wine that was ridiculously expensive. <laughs> and we're eating. I go, this is great. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what year said, is this? Late 89. Okay. I said, this is just our thank you to you. And I go, for what? They said, because of your Batman movie, it has opened the eyes of the world. The fact that comic books are actually still being published. Mm-hmm. And although candy stores have disappeared and drug stores and 7-Eleven doesn't have them anymore. close behind them, yeah. Yeah, that there exists now comic book stores that they can go to and find comics. He said, our comic sales are up 20-something percent across the board. He says, this is our thank you. Yeah, because I mean, of you, we just made this great deal with a guy named Roger Corman. Have you heard of him? We just, but this movie's going to be great. I'm kidding. I'm but, kidding. But, I'm here, kidding. but here's one of the points. And, <laughs> right. And God, my fans, I love, I love you. I'm one of you. I've been one since I was a little kid in the 50s. I was there as fandom organized. And here's what I don't understand today. When I was growing up, I loved 
comic books and I loved superheroes. I read and collected everything. Marvel, I loved. DC, I loved. Dell, Mighty Comics, mm-hmm. ACG, um, all these other little com- classics illustrated, Archie and Richie Rich, for God's sake. And that's just the American stuff. Yeah, just the American yeah. stuff. And I loved it and collected all of it. And I, I really, truly don't quite understand how, where the polarization has come from that f- certain fans would go, oh, I love DC and I hate Marvel. Or I love Marvel and I hate DC. I just love it all. Mm-hmm. I just love it all. And um, that's my disconnect that, that I have a hard time dealing with. I think the dumbing down of the conversation to being, and we talked about it earlier when people are like, oh, Matt Reeves totally versus Christopher Nolan. And I think that is just not even part of the discussion. And I, I would say anybody listening to this, try and just correct any of those discussions going on and let these people understand that we are talking about stories that are going to live well beyond us and they have lived well before us and many iterations and that dumbing it down to a horse race is ridiculous and it sells these characters that you're supposed to love short there are times when i'm not as big of a fan of crossing out of the dc because my favorite creators aren't over there and the stories aren't connecting with me and then i said this on the episode just prior where we talked about the batman you get a character like jeff lemire who's an indie creator and creates some really beautiful indie books and he does Robin and Batman with this amazing artwork, watercolor artwork. And it's just a three-issue series. But suddenly I'm picking up more DC stuff. Or you get a Scott Snyder with his Court of Owls stuff. And you're just like, whoa, this is amazing. You know? In my era, like in this, going in from the 60s into the 70s, some of my favorite Silver Age into the Bronze Age writers of the time, Denny O'Neill, mm-hmm. Marv Wolfman. Len Wein, Roy Thomas, and they're still Steve with us. Englehart, Jerry Conway. Like 17 minutes later, all those DC guys are at Marvel. Yes. And then 34 minutes later, they're back at DC. And then some are at DC and some are Marvel. You know, this May, I will have started working at DC Comics 50 years ago. 50. That's insane. And we had, in New York, we had our own little uh, softball and volleyball league that we did among the um, media companies. So we had a team, Marvel had a team, and I can't tell you how many times the players just switched from side to side because it was virtually interchangeable. And you all didn't invite Archie Comics to the hang out with you? No, Marvel. no. How dare no. you? Well, they weren't good actors. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Conway came up on the episodes a little bit earlier because he'd retweeted uh, a Punisher comment I made, and the thing went, crazy online and i just kept getting like my twitter wouldn't shut off and i just made a comment about the punisher because uh, a buddy of mine was one of the people when you know you start seeing the punisher logo co-opted by different groups that maybe aren't so great um i had made a comment on it and i think jerry uh was like yeah i agree with you <laughs> <laughs> and that made me feel good because obviously people like him and len wayne like we wouldn't have the punisher wolverine and all these amazing characters without them um so it's, it's incredible and yeah they've done good stuff for both companies yeah you know um all right we gotta get to some of the questions that they've asked you yeah i've got them here uh and we didn't even talk about all the different actors you looked at for that 89 batman which is just insane but it's it's either in this book it probably is is in the boy who loved batman it's probably in the batman's batman and uh jim puggernally put a helped me with some of these topics he really uh 
loves um, this Glenn Weldon book, The Cape Crusade. Glenn's a pretty good writer. He's got a uh, Superman book out too. I have to say I didn't read the book. Yeah, he, he, he did a book on Batman called The Cape Crusade, and he also did another one on, on Superman. Maybe I'll invite Glenn onto the show. Uh, he seems like a good dude, but I love having you here because, Michael, this is so much fun geeking out. Okay, here we go. These are from Facebook. If you guys are on the Geekscape Forever Facebook page, you've submitted questions. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But join the Facebook group and be part of these conversations. Um, Tyler Jen says, there are tons of Batman-related projects that fell through for whatever reason. Which one was the white whale for you? Mm, 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 mm. We didn't even talk about your 1979 Return of the Batman script. Yeah. Um, which I may have breaking news for you shortly about that. Your that 1979 may, that version? may see the light of day momentarily. I love that DC is possibly taking some of these unproduced film properties and TV properties and turning them into comic books. If I'm getting warm, go ahead and talk about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, it was the white whale. And it's tough to call him a white whale when maybe one day they do re- come back as a new iteration. Yeah, I would have to say that was probably the Batman Beyond live action picture. Um, that was in development. Paul Dini wrote a really good script and um, the studio brought in a director that I don't think it was the right director at the right time. Mm -hmm. I always saw Batman Beyond way back then as a Clint Eastwood movie. Wow. Clint Eastwood playing Bruce Wayne at 75. I feel like he was modeled after I think in Bruce a lot of Wayne, ways. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways you could argue that. Older Bruce Wayne was kind of that Clint Eastwood gruffled sort of thing. That, yeah. Um, so that's probably the one. Yeah. That, 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 uh, what year was this? What year was this? It was at the same time we were developing the with Wolfgang Peterson, Batman meets Superman. And that one is for me, the project that, that or the George Miller Justice League, those are the two that I'm like, I would have loved to see. Like Wolfgang Peterson, I think is an overlooked director. I think Das Boot is incredible. I think, that Clint Eastwood movie he did in the line of fire is mm-hmm. incredible. Good movie. Um, I, I love to see those creators back in these conversations because they're filmmakers. They want to make films. These just happen to have comic book characters in them. How close were you on that thing with the Batman uh, meets Superman? Wolfgang well, Peterson one. The, the only, the only answer you can get to that would come from the studio at the top. Mm. They're, they're, they would really be the only ones that really know how close or how far that that actually was. But working with everybody that was working in development at the time, uh, there were some really, really great people who were, you know, in the trenches. It was it it was an interesting time. And this is early two thousands, the the Batman Beyond one. Yeah. It's, I mean that would have been around the time Ken Reeves is doing Matrix. Yeah. Um, but the good news is yeah. I think everything ground to a halt ultimately because Christopher Nolan was given the keys to the franchise. Yeah. And so it's all a great thing. Yeah. If that's what you have to sacrifice to get to Chris Nolan and the Dark Knight trilogy, then you sacrifice it. Yeah, that George Miller Justice League, though, when you go in and see what he does with Fury Road a couple of years later, uh, whew. Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Anytime you're going to do any kind of movie and place Batman in a surrounding with a green guy from Mars yeah. and a guy who talks to fish and a guy who's an inch tall sitting in a uh, lounge chair uh, hovering over his shoulder... <laughs> It, it's challenging. The, the, I, I love that Tower of Babel, Mark Wade storyline where the villains get into the Bat computer and they realize that Batman's kept 
receipts and weaknesses on all the Justice League, and they use it to take the Justice League apart. Remember that yeah, storyline, yeah. Tower of Babel? Um, a part of me wonders if that's the starting place for a Justice League film where, Bruce, you got some explaining to do, <laughs> and it's a it, it's a... It's a movie where Bruce has to reprove himself to these people that trusted in him. And at the same time, they have to save the planet and put it all back together. Isn't it great that we get to all sit here <laughs> and nerds. think about our favorite story arcs <laughs> and how they could be translated to the screen? Wouldn't that be fun? Um, this is fun. Yeah. I, I mean, if it goes no further than this, listen. this is fun to just ruminate about this. Edwin Black in Austin says, what villain from the comics would you most like to see on the big screen? Which would, which is like uh, Tyler Farr in Utah, I believe says, yes, I'd like to see maybe what villains that have not been adapted to film that you would like to see. You were saying the Zodiac man. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, put that out on the internet. That's all you I You said mean, right? uh, Matt Reeves had called you about the Zodiac man from the other day. <laughs> is that true? Can I put that in? I'm kidding. Do not print that to no, be escapist. No, not, not, not that. Anything but that. And yeah. I, there hasn't been a real good discussion of Twiddle D and Twiddle Dumb recently. <laughs> right. Um, you know, there, there, there's a few things. And, and now, everybody, listen carefully. Yeah. I'm not talking now with the producing hat on. I'm talking, we're all talking Fans. about as fanboys. Yeah. This is just fanboy stuff that we're doing here. So don't go on the internet and say, oh, Uslan said this or that, because I didn't. Um, my favorite episodes from the animated series are Mr. Freeze. And there's been talk that on the internet that we had this color scheme of red with Matt Reeves' first, the Batman Maybe we go primary blue with the next one, and it is a winter, like Mr. Freeze theme with the blue. And then we go into a green one for the third one with a, maybe a poison ivy and a killer croc in the sewers or whatever. I do want to see the Court of Owls and all this expansion of the characters, but Mr. Freeze would be awesome. Um, that shows what you can do with different villains. I mean, it gives you an idea. Now, um, you know, Batman is not in the world of the supernatural or pseudoscience. Uh, the Batman, yeah. The, 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 the Batman, yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, but if, you know, 20 years from now, somebody does uh, man bat, yeah. uh, that was oh, next to Raj al Ghul. That was my favorite, uh, villain in the seventies. Yeah. The man bat. And, and again, another poignant story like Mr. Freeze had, um, there, there have just been so many great ones. I loved my brave and bolds when, whenever Batman and dead man teamed up. Yes. And there was a dead man series for a while that was in development over Warner brothers that yeah. I think would have been really cool in a way that it was maybe um, like a quantum leap type of series where you had dead man inhabiting a different person every episode and before leaping into the next one and discovering that person's story or what was going on in their lives before having to move on. It had that incredible Hulk quantum leap feel. Here we go. We're doing it again. I love it. <laughs> I love that stuff. When Simon Pegg was on the show, he came in and he sat down, different couch, different, different apartment, and he saw my collection of Incredible Hulk on the DVDs on the shelf. And he said that was his favorite show as a kid. And I just loved the incredible Hulk as a kid. And so again, like having somebody like, um, you know, uh, uh, Kenny Johnson on the show, I asked him a million questions about that stuff. Okay. We can't, we're, we're racing through them. Geekscapists. Um, Tyler also says out of any franchise out there, Batman has a history of having very silly and comedic movies, but then also having very, how dare you, sir, having very dark and brooding movies. Is it freeing or challenging to be able to make such a range of films 
and still be true to the history of Batman because I think we talked about yeah, that. Yeah, he's so today. dynamic. Yeah. He's so dynamic. We, we, we spent a lot of time talking um, about that. Isaac Gomez says, what were the key things the team wanted to do differently with Matt Reeves compared to the predecessors? Maybe you were in those discussions, maybe not with the similarities and differences that our patents and gave us to Bruce Wayne that strengthens the film. I have, I think I feel like we have yet to see him fully go Bruce Wayne and we, he's gonna, he's gonna, he'll show up at a ball in a tuxedo. You'll see it. Evolution. Evolution. Um, what, what are the uh, similarities and differences for Robert Pattinson for you? And what were some of the things that you think uh, Matt there, Reeves no, wanted to approach differently? The only way to answer that question is for each of you to see the movie. Yeah. Because you're going to spoil it here if yeah, you don't yeah, see the movie. Yeah. It, it, we can't talk about it. You, you've got to see it and judge for yourself. And you'll know on your own. As soon as you see it, you'll know what the differences and the similarities are. Because if, for me, being a cynic of, uh, you know, there's just so, another Batman movie already. There's so many DC characters. Why don't we get another one? Um, when I saw the Matt Reeves pivot, and it's not like it was a quick pivot. I mean, this was a, a film that involved Ben Affleck at one time. I think Ben is such an incredible director. I love Gone Baby Gone so much. That seeing what he would have done as director, this and that, I think Matt Reeves is incredible. I like think I think those eight films are incredible. Um, but part of me was cynical and said, "Hey, like, how is this not just doubling down on more of the gritty realism that Nolan gave?" I can definitely say that this is different than Nolan's films. And a part of me thought that this was just going to be a continuation of the gritty realism that Nolan gave. Now, this has his own imprint on it. It is. It is, I mean, I said, I said that I found a lot of it emotionally inaccessible and it was hard for me to watch some of this stuff. I was watching it and being like, hey, where's my in? As a, like, where's my in on this one? But what I liked about it was that by the end, I started to see what was going to make me be a fan of this one. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And, you know, if you see different movies, Silence of the Lambs, um, Seven, yeah. The Usual Suspects, Zodiac, um, in all, I mean, these are all references for the film. They had to be in the, it's crime noir. I mean, it is crime drama noir style. And, um, but down to the beach, like the bleach bypass process they used on seven, they use on this film mm-hmm. where they shoot on digital, they put it through film, they do that bleach bypass pro- process. I mean, the, the movie is beautiful. Dune was beautiful. Same as some however, those movies are beautiful. This is a film. The Nolan movies are films too. They are. They're all great films, by the way. <laughs> you are so biased. I'm kidding. Yeah. They're pretty good. These yeah. are pretty good movies here. Yeah. I like Batman Begins. Batman Begins gets overshadowed awesome. by The Dark Knight, but I, Batman without a strong foundation, Batman Begins, you don't get The Dark Knight. Well, I thought that was such a well-written movie. In my humble opinion, Christopher Nolan made one movie in three acts. Okay. I mean... So if you miss act one, you can't appreciate... Act two and act three big, as much as if you had seen yeah. act one. Yeah. When he tips that to when it, the, the last shot, when you see Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne give the nod to Alfred and he's got, finally got his happy life that he'd been pursuing since the beginning. That is the end of the trilogy. And we were just left to think of what that last movie could have also been had Heath not passed, which is really tragic because like, yeah, uh, it's, what a shock. They, like, that performance is incredible. Incredible. Um, performance of a lifetime. Okay. Nathan DiCarlo says, would it be ideal to have Pattinson's Batman merge into the DCEU in the near future? Why or why not? Do we keep this thing separately or do we start? I mean, this is a multiverse, so I don't see why this wouldn't happen, but this is its own thing, I feel. What do you think on this one, Michael? All right. Everybody needs to buckle themselves in because I'm going to give you a lesson, a history lesson in comics. 
So there is a difference between Marvel and DC, an intrinsic difference in terms of comic books. Um, let's start with let's start with Marvel. Just put aside for the moment the fact that there was a Marvel method in creating the comics and that the artists were responsible largely for plotting from page to page. Mm -hmm. But just in terms of the fact there was one writer and one editor, and it was the same guy. And what you were getting was a unified vision that created a universe co-created a universe with Stan, Jack, Don Heck, uh, Dick Ayers, I mean, every, Gene Colan, the mm -hmm. list would go on and on. I don't want to leave anybody out, but um, so it's a co-created universe, but it's one editor and one at that early moment script writer um, or dialogue writer. Yeah. And it was unified. So when you picked up a Marvel comic in that era and pretty much since then, you knew what the rules were and the rules were always consistent. You knew what the tone was. They weren't trying to talk down to you or talk to a eight to 12 year old boy audience over here and a college age audience over there. You knew when you were reading comic books in July, 1963, you knew as a Marvel fan and reader that month, if Thor was in New York city at that time and might be swinging through times square at any moment. And if they broke it, you'd have to win a no prize. You could call them on it and yeah. be like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Thor's in two different places in the same week. Exactly. You knew what was under the ocean. You knew what was in outer space. It was unified. It's very cohesive. So now you translate that to a cinematic universe and the fact that everything ties together makes perfect organic sense. Now let's go to DC. Since the early days at DC, there have been as many as six to eight different editors. Or publishers. Because some of this stuff was all like, some of this stuff were the different comic. I mean, Shazam was over on a different publisher oh, yeah. entirely. I mean, we, we, you we start to have to, these companies come together to create DC. Yeah, we, yeah. Could, we, we could talk about that for 10 hours yeah, of course. just alone. So you had Julie Schwartz, for example, that was aiming his group of comics, his characters at an older audience. His Batman was the new look Batman and then returning Batman to his darker roots in the 1970s. Meanwhile, Murray Boltnoff had Brave and Bold, and he was doing something independently with Batman. Mort Weisinger, in those earlier days, had Batman in World's Finest. And like with Superman, his primary audi audience was 8 to 12-year-old boys. So what happened was you were getting these different editors building a fiefdom with a castle with a, with walls around it and a moat filled with alligators. They employed their own artists and writers, little bullpen, and they didn't want pretty much anybody else touching these characters. So you had these fiefdoms set up at DC Comics. Case in point, maybe I was 10, 11 years old. I go to the drugstore and I buy two comic books this Wednesday. One is an issue of, I think, Action Comics or Superman. Mm -hmm. The other one is, I think, an issue of Showcase. With Aquaman. Yeah. I open up the Superman story. He falls in love with a mermaid. And Aquaman's in it, yeah. And she's from Atlantis. Yeah. And Atlantis has a dome under the water, and everybody are mermen or mermaids. Yeah. Wow. that I love that story as a little kid. Put it down. I open up Aquaman. Wait a minute. He's the king of <laughs> Atlantis. There's no dome. You don't need one if you're like if you're a merman or a mermaid. Why would no you need? Why would you need a dome? And the, yeah, and there's no <laughs> mermen or mermaids here. 
And this is the same company, the same week. They're working their way towards a crisis is what's happening. <laughs> 1985, they tried to clear all that stuff out. I kind of like what we're at now where you get a different taste. Like you said, like there's for, stuff for younger people in the Cineplex. There's stuff for older people. You can go see the crypto movie here in a little bit. You can have a Gotham City universe, a Metropolis universe, an Atlantis universe, a Paradise Island universe. In the presence of the Robert Pattinson, the Matt Reeves, the Batman does not negate that we're going to move forward with Flashpoint introducing a different iteration of Batman. We're going to have a different iteration of Batman. We're going to have his Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman in that one. There's going to be, you're going to go to movie theaters and have what the experience was that young Michael had where there's two Batmans. They're different. They're just different Batmans. And it doesn't change anything Todd Phillips did with Joker, which made $1.1 billion just in movie theaters. Welcome to what we've been dealing with since we were kids. All right. The populace, the people at large are going to have to start discovering how to keep charts like we did on our walls and be like, wait, let me make sense of this. Okay. That is earth 616. That is a different earth. Okay. We're like, welcome to what we've been doing. That whole time we weren't invited to parties as kids. This is what we were doing. We were connecting dots of different multiverses. And now you have to do it too. Popular two, people. two comic books that changed my life as a kid. Uh, the Justice League was at 21, where it was the first time Earth 2, just, the, the Justice Society was brought mm-hmm. back. <clears throat> and it was Crisis on Earth 1, Crisis on Earth 2. It was a two-parter. Like a year or so later, when they started with Crisis on Earth 3, at that moment in time, I said, that's too many. And now we're, we're at Earth 1 zillion. And they keep zeroing it out. Like Marvel yeah. zeroed out their universe with the recent, like, Secret War, which is a, the second real secret war, which is actually the third real secret war because there was a secret war on two in the 80s. Like, it becomes a mess. So buckle up, theater goers, because it's going to happen to y'all. And it's going to happen into the video games. It's going to happen everywhere these characters exist. At the moments I get most vexed, <clears throat> I sit back and I think, I go, oh, yeah, this isn't real. Yeah. And you've got stories to tell of your own. And one of them is the Batman's Batman which y'all should all pick up right now. Available at Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. But that's a sequel to The Boy Who Loved Batman, so you're going to have to get both of them. You see how we're doing this? That's right. It's very co- you learn from comics. Right. Uh, Sundance Sh- uh, Shalene Paul uh, Bikini says, my question is, when developing Batman in the 80s, is it true to the original pitch uh, as basically what you produced with Nolan? Would you say the Nolan movies were closer to what you had been developing in the 80s? No, than no, no, the no, Tim no, Burton? no, no. I think the Tim... I think what... If you read the book, what you've developed in the 80s turned into the Tim Burton movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love the Tim Burton stuff. Um, I love both of them. That Tim Burton was mummy as a kid. Yeah, and let's not forget yeah. <clears throat> Batman Mask of the Phantasm, if we may. Because yeah, you talked about Mark Hamill, and that movie yeah, was awesome. Yeah, I, I, just a reminder, that is one of the greatest stories ever told of Batman in the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian Blatt, he says... Can you talk about walking the line between keeping some degree of consistency between the different interpretations of the character while leaving room for each director to make his own mark on the character? We talked about Schumacher. Yeah, I think we talked He's talking about, about Tim Burton going into Schumacher tonally being a, a slight difference, but we, we talked about where that might have happened. There's a difference from Joel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, even though narratively we wanted that character to be the continuation of it. Mm, I don't see it at all. Should that have just been a clean break it's and a reset? clean break. Do you clean consider break. it a clean break reset? I, I, in my head, it's a clean break. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, Dan Gilbert says he likely wouldn't answer, but would love to know a few of the actors that were considered for Batman over the years. Eh. Oh my there, God. there are definitely some <laughs> in the other book. Yeah, you know what happens is a lot of times over the years, there are meetings that take place. 
or there's some correspondence and people throw out names. We got in and, this list, Tom Cruise, Daniel Day-Lewis, Alec Baldwin, Pierce Brosnan, Charlie Sheen, and even Bill Murray. You argued for Harrison Ford to Kevin Costner, supposedly. Burton chose Michael Keaton. Uh, How not, accurate is that? Not, that's not accurate. Okay, you argued for Polly Shore. Is that true? Um, no, I, I made that's that not true. I made that up just now. I'm sorry. Um, that's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> um, you you got to remember that in the process of development, names get tossed about. Yeah. Um, you sit around, you make writers' lists. You can make directors' lists. You make actors' lists. And then you might have people on staff that whose job it is to go and, and give a list of every uh, actor uh, who's available or every actor who has been successful in the last few years, whatever it might be. I remember on a very, very, very early Batman actor list, I'm going to say circa early 1980, um, somebody put on a list every major actor of the day. So you had names like Dustin Hoffman on it. Yeah, it doesn't mean that they no. were ever seriously considered or made an offer. He was great names. in Dick Tracy. True. The Dick Tracy cast is like don't sleep on that Dick Tracy cast. That was a damn good cast. Uh, it was an interesting cast. The names that I remember early on, early, early, early on, going back to seventy nine or eighty, and up until eighty six when Keaton. Uh, Started emerging. Start, started, yeah. Well, his career Tim, was Tim kicking came in, on yeah. board in '86, and so. I love Pee-wee's Big Adventure. That may be my favorite. No offense, my, my, I mean that that That's script. Great that movie. script is. I mean, I'm a huge Bicycle Thieves fan. That's my favorite movie of all time. It's just a great movie. That script that he wrote with Phil Hartman is incredible. I think it's so funny, and it's my it's a parodying my favorite movie. That's what got me so excited about Tim Burton when I saw Incredible. the final then, fine cut on uh, Pee Wee's. And then we saw Beetlejuice at a drive-in this past summer, and that movie holds up. That is a tight, like ninety-minute movie. That is a tight movie. Every shot and beat of that movie is so well thought out. You can tell he's a bit of an animator and mm -hmm. really thinking every piece of this out. Incredible. Continue the the, the names. Uh, yeah, in the earliest of early days, you know, going th up till about eighty-seven, eighty-eight. Maybe um, there were there were names bandied about James Caan, um, Harrison Ford, <clears throat> Den uh, Dennis Quaid, Kevin Costner, yeah, pretty much any serious actor well, of the day popped up on the list. Now go back to seventy nine. I had on my original list. Give you an idea how long ago <laughs> this was. Um, Charles Bronson. I had uh, David Niven to play Alfred the Butler. Yes. Um, I was joking about Charles Bronson, but maybe he's gritty. Um, what's his face? Um, oh, geez. It's so long ago. Um, uh, Bill Holden to mm -hmm. play Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. That's from the 79 memo. Wow. Um, so. Speaking of, um, you said Dennis Quaid, who was in Inner Space, who Joe, which Joe Dante ended up doing, and yeah. I love Inner Space. Joe Dante was on your list. Around the time he was doing Gremlins, Joe Joe was signed to do Batman for a while. And as was and as was yeah. Ivan Reitman and Robert Zemeckis, or those were just bandied Rob, about. No, Ivan Reitman was was on board. Uh, Z was not on board. I um, think I think Roger Rabbit is incredible. Yeah. I mean, obviously, everybody thinks about Back to the Future it is incredible, but Roger Rabbit, holy crap! How'd they pull that off? I was involved in a great movie project with Z that that we tried to uh, to do for years based on. Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's The Fly. Oh, my God. And I talk about it in the book. Uh, Will Smith wanted to do it. 
Um, and um, Bob was working on a screenplay with a couple of A-list writers and never quite coalesced. Mm. We had it set up at DreamWorks. Joe Dante is just, I mean, I love, he's like a Sam Raimi for me. He's somebody oh, who just has great. a colorful comic book style. And I loved seeing Inner Space as a kid in the movie. We were fans yeah. together as kids. And obviously I mean, Gremlin, yeah. Gremlins, I would see yeah. his letters popping up in Famous Monsters of Filmland. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the first time we, we had anything to do with each other professionally, I had just started working at United Artists, which was a major studio back in the uh, 70s. Yeah. And the first project they put me in charge of the legal business and financial affairs of was a Roger Corman film that we were doing called Piranha. Yes, and that is the the, Joe Dante film. And the group of us that cut our teeth on Piranha. There was me, John Davison, who was a line producer on it. Joe Dante, Mm -hmm. his first directing. John Sales wrote it. John Sales wrote it. And John Sales is a writer, writer. Like, he's an incredible incredible. writer. Uh, Gail Ann Hurd was a PA Mm -hmm. on it. And there was a there was a special effects guy. Oh, what's his name? Hmm. He ended up doing the sequel to Piranha. What was his oh, name? He, nothing God. happened to him. He no, never ended up no. amounting to much of anything. Uh, Jimmy? Jason? Jim? Was it Jimmy Cameron? Jim Cameron. <laughs> it was Jimmy Cameron. Jim Cameron. Yeah. It's insane. But Poor James guy. Cameron went from the art uh, from the special effects department of Piranha, which you all shot down in San Marcos, Texas, uh, because we used to go Paul swimming Martel. there as a kid. He he, he was and, genius behind that. And movie. then. He does the spawning, the sequel to Piranha, and then he does Terminator. Hmm. Insane how fast that trajectory for for James Cameron was. It's just amazing. Uh, All right. We got uh, a couple more. Seth Eisenberg, who I love, says, can you talk about interconnectivity versus freedom approach DCU? We talked about that. With the comics along Halloween, Ego being stated inspirations for the new movie, this is the first time I'm seeing the linkage be, be more explicit. Do you see a more concerted effort to drive more of the movie audience towards the comics now? No, I think the comics are just driving creators. They're just being mined and they're great stories. It's always seemed like a missed opportunity to push people towards comics. That seems like it's not in the interest of some of these. It's a more symbiotic relationship. Comics are getting from the movies. Movies are getting from the comics. It's working both ways. I mean, having Hollywood costume designers and production designers educate what cities and the books should look like or the costumes when the X-Men went leather after the, um, that, that Grant Morrison storyline, where suddenly the X Men are all in leather post to Brian Singer, still looked great. Mm-hmm. It still looked awesome. Jim so, Pugnarelli. Oh, let, go me, ahead. let me just take Please. a moment. Credit to Anton first, dear friend of mine, genius. He was the one who took from Sam Ham's script, which had like one line in it that described Gotham City. It said Gotham City as if hell had erupted from under the earth. I know that line, yeah. And Anton said to Tim, I don't know what this means. And Tim said, I think it means New York City had there never been planning and zoning. Mm. So Anton said, I get it. He goes off, studies conflicting styles of architecture, comes in with all the plans for Gotham City, the Batmobile, the whole look of the picture. The railways, overhead railways and and everything. Anton's design work still influences every genre movie to this very day. Yeah, it's almost like watching. Uh, did you ever see uh, the Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary on no, I didn't. Alejandro Jodorowsky doing Dune and how it educated every sci-fi movie up through Alien and you saw it. I mean, the Ridley Scott stuff's really heavy, but how he 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 discovered Mobius, the artist, he just to, to do art for his Dune back in the late '60s, early '70s. How he discovered uh, Giger and doing the artwork for his Dune, like it's. Incredible what these Hollywood people are putting into just, I guess, the like the, the, the visual lexicon of the, the pop culture. Yeah, for those of you into sci-fi, I'll just geek out for a moment. 
thanks to Julie Schwartz, I got to meet Ray Bradbury and Alfred Bester. Um, I met Isaac Asimov. That's incredible. Um, Otto Binder, of course, who did the landmark Adam Link stories, um, among so many others, as Eando Binder. <laughs> um, so many greats in the in the world um, that that I had the chance to actually meet and talk to. Uh, a fascinating part of the whole business, and uh, part of the reason I got into this business because this was all the stuff I loved as you, a kid. And you geeked out with all those people too. I had a chance, yeah. Um, any Marvel characters? Jim wants to know how many Marvel characters he would like to work on, but you have worked on some Marvel characters, have you not? Um, there's a couple of stories in my book. I had the rights to Luke Cage, Hero for Hire. Mm-hmm. I had uh, I was going to do Doctor Strange with Wes Craven, um, which did not materialize. Uh, and then I talked about two comic books that I wanted to do for Marvel that they wouldn't let me do. Um, I proposed, I ought to dig out. I have a really, really long um like pitch. It's, it's more than that pitch. Like a it, it's a complete treatment yeah. for these things. One was uh, the Cosmic Cube. Okay. And to tell a story of all these different Marvel heroes through the eyes of Cosmic Cube. In the manipulations that it made, the, yeah. the bending of their realities. Yeah. And they said, you can't do it. It just touches too many characters who are, we now have in continuity doing too many different things. Mm. I said, all right. What, uh, the other thing I wanted to do was revive Marvel Mystery Comics. That's cool. And create for Marvel. Um, as if it had Marvel today been created in 1939, like DC comics, mm-hmm. 38, um, and show the golden age Spider-Man and the golden age, fantastic four. Oh, that's cool. Before like the green lantern gets reset, the yeah. same man gets reset. These are other characters in the different and iterations get reset. That'd have been fun. That'd I be nice as like that. a, like a, like a, what if Elseworlds type thing. Both. I think that that still live. That could still live. All right, let's tell them. I, I think it's cool. Do I don't it. see why not. I mean, let you do Slim see. Do I mean, you see Spider-Man Noir in the the multiverse, in the Spider Verse, and things like that. That's almost like a 1920s Spider-Man. That that thing, you know, those those alternate versions are are popular. Uh, okay, we're wrapping up here. Michael Patrick Benson says, "My question is, why does he keep producing Batman movies? Come on, you pay his mortgage. Is it, <laughs> is it the love of the character as a kid? Yes, yes. He's written two books about this. I did get a really good offer from Domino's, but I decided to just stick to the movie making. How's <laughs> your driving, uh, Patrick? Also, uh, Michael Patrick also says, and if I can ask the second question, what was your favorite portrayal of a DC villain? Um, like, what is the what is the version of the DC villain? I think it's Colin, Joker, inarguably, inarguably." The, the Oscar-winning Joker? Which iteration of the Joker? Joker. Yeah. Joker is the greatest supervillain ever created in comic books. Period. End of story. So Better than Lex Luthor. Better than Lex Luthor. Because I think as, as a foil for Superman, Lex Luthor is phenomenal. For me, you might have... I mean, you're the bad guy. I would love to see a classic Two-Face Batman story because they're both dualities. Mm-hmm. And they both knew each other prior to becoming what they became. And now they know, like, I think a mere, like, I think that story would be so badass. Here's the way I see it. Um, and I've always seen it. It's like Edgar Allan Poe's Cask of Amontillado. Mm-hmm. It is the mask of the carnival, um, dis- hiding the seething horror lurking just beneath the surface. And the fact that you have Batman and Joker who have been so scarred, one physically and one, one internally, mentally, internally. Yeah. And they walking this super thin line. And clearly, in my mind's eye, 
had Bruce, had Bruce Wayne not found an anchor for his humanity after his parents' slaughter. And where I think but, Dick is very important too. I think Alfred and Dick play very important parts of well, that. Well, to yeah. me, it's Alfred sure. and Leslie Tompkins sure. who save his humanity and keep him anchored to his humanity. He easily could have gone the dark side. Mm. He could have gone the dark side. And now you've got these two opposing, eternally opposing forces. And one is the representation of good in the guise of a horrific, dark, monstrous bat. Mm -hmm. And the other that is pure evil in the guise of a happy, um, bright clown. And that is a beautiful, it's just, it's it's poetry. It's it's ballet. That's what I always think. And when you, you know, we talk to Stan, whenever you talk to Stan, what amazed me and also George Romero, when we got a chance to work with him, both those guys had such a grasp of the classics and, and Stan could just recite a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he knew like the Dickens stories go and he knew the Greek stories and he knew the Shakespeare stories and he could talk about the symmetry of those characters and the way that they fit together like poetry. And I, for me, that's why I would love to still see, and we're going to get it a great fantastic four film. Cause for me, the fantastic four were like a Shakespearean op, like, story with the tragedy of doom and Ben Grimm and these different characters all stuck in a, pretty much a family together. Um, if you were to ask me, I think the Joker, yeah, that's the first time you've, you've legitimized the Joker to that level for me where they are internal external swaps of each other. And that's what links them. Mm-hmm. Cause for me, I really wanted to see Harvey Dent get his day in both the dualities of these characters Bruce has to go between them. Harvey is stuck as them and that they knew each other as one before they became a other. And I, I think there's a beautiful story that'd be told there. There's a lot of beautiful stories. You could, you could define a story between Batman and Catwoman. Yeah. I mean, so, so much of it is, uh, is incredible on many, on many levels. If you were to ask me to just name one primary candidate for the best run of any comic book in history, Oh. It would be for me Fantastic Four in the era of Galactus, Silver Surfer, um, Inhumans. Mm-hmm. Black that, Panther was introduced. Black in Panther, there. yeah, right in that sweet spot. Late sixties, mid seventies. I don't stuff. think there's this man, this monster. It's possibly incredible. The greatest it's comic incredible. book ever written. Incredible and drawn. Um, and Ben Grimm is such a tragic character, and they just. They swing and they miss. I don't know how hard they're swinging over there. They were swinging over there, but I think Marvel's. I think the Kevin Feige era of Marvel is going to really swing and miss and swing and hit this thing. Yeah, I think they're going to hit this thing. Damn, I want a good Fantastic Four story. I had the cast of the Corman Fantastic Four in a very uh, maybe six, seven, eight years ago on Geekscape. I had the cast of the Fantastic Four from Corman on, and it was so much fun just talking about the stories of how hard it was to make that movie with the. Restrictions Corman had put in place, shall we say. Uh, but My we still celebrate was, it. Was it the end where they get married and they're driving off and he's waving goodbye? It's and it's stick. like, like, a, a, like a, a piece like, of cloth on a stick. It's like a lollipop <laughs> stick with a hand on it. <laughs> Bye, everybody. All right. Um, uh, in, ultimately, Dan Gilbert says these are some high-end next-level questions. So he wants to compete with saying, uh, do you know if the boxers are briefs under all that rubber of the bat suit? I don't think he's got room for either. I think he's going commando. Batman's going commando. Can I? So he's he's asking what? Well, if, if, bo- if there are boxers or briefs under Batman's rubber. What's the exact question? Yeah, uh, 
oh, wants to know, are there boxers or briefs under all that rubber? So it's not, do you know if? Uh, do you, well, yeah, just wanted, he wants to know. He thinks you he are the person to know. to know if Batman's wearing briefs or boxers. Um, I have no comment on that. <laughs> But, but that was after due consideration. Yeah, we have to think about these things, you yeah. know. You're fighting crime, you don't want to chafe. <laughs> don't want to chafe. Another thing I enjoyed about the Robert Pattons and Batman, he makes mistakes. He gets his butt whooped. He makes mistakes. He's learning. All He's right. Learning. We've kept you well past my bedtime. Uh, we talk all this stuff. Well, Michael, it's good reconnecting with you after a pandemic, man. Last time we literally saw each other was at LA Comic Con. You had just done a panel, and I came up to say hi. We got a brief moment together, but having you on the show for two hours to talk shop in your books. It's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Um, Stan always said, make sure you get in the plug. So it's the two books. Um, it's my, um, the course through the Smithsonian Institution. Tell me about that, that one. My son, David and I teach with Stan Lee. We, we did it with Stan. Um, you could take it before, online. Shortly before his passing, we completed everything and it is available free through edX. And uh, there have been, something like 160,000 people that have signed up for it. Did I mention it's free? Um, edX has a lot of cool programs. And uh, my friend Marion, a couple of years ago, had taken, she said, look, this Stan Lee graphic novels course, like you re- like it's it, like those are the textbooks for the course or comics. And, and she introduced me to the whole edX thing specifically for your course, but edX has a lot of cool free courses. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and I think if you're a geek like me, you'll really enjoy it. Uh, the audiobook version of Batman's Batman just went on sale through Blackstone and Amazon. Uh, I'll be appearing at Big Apple Comic Con on March like 26th, 27th in New York City. And uh, really, really glad that we're all getting through COVID and the pandemic and things are opening. And you know, everybody get to a movie theater, support your local movie theaters. The, you know, it's not just about supporting Batman. I mean, that that's true and that's great and it's important, but it's also important. We really, really help out um, our friends who own theaters and need to to get back up on their feet. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, get to Amazon, The Boy Who Loved Batman. That is the first book and then Batman's Batman. But you don't need to read one before the other, but just know that if you read both, you're going to get the full picture. Yeah, and so um, tip off. Um, the Boy Who Loved Batman is being turned into a Broadway play, and it's picking up steam. It's being fast-tracked, and I'm very, very excited about that. Cool, man. Well, dude, thanks for coming on. I'm going to catch up with David, your son, and we'll grab lunch or something like that. You know? Sounds great. Well, bye, Geekscapist. I'm going to log you off now on the live stream. Um, thanks for being part of this. Good talking to you. Bye, everybody. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.